Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of June 2023 and this is episode 306. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian, teacher and author Peter Welsh about his research into the aristocratic Lambton ladies of Durham and what they got up to during the First World War. They were Catherine, Eleanor, Beatrix and Anne. Peter spoke to me from his home in Washington, Tynan Weir. Peter, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Let's start at the beginning and I should say welcome back. Now, how did you get interested in the Great War and in the Lamptons, which we're going to discuss today in particular? Oh, it's very good of you to, uh, to invite me back or for, to accept my offer of coming back. So the Great War, well, I had a childhood interest in history, which was encouraged by my father. He'd had to leave school when he was 14 and therefore always approved of something that he'd missed, education. He was a member of the Workers' Education Association and always supported uh, my studies and those of my brothers. I did history at college and then taught some of it for 37 years and Given that the Lamptons were the chief landowners in and around Washington, when I began researching into the Washington men of the Great War, I kept bumping into John George Lampton, or Lord Durham, or the Third Earl of Durham, and thereby the rest of the family. So who are the Lampton families and where do they live? I know this is obviously connected to where you live, but not everybody knows where you live. Right. Okay. So I'm in Washington. Uh, beside the Worm Hill, a famous song, and the Lamptons are a very old established family in the northeast, uh, and they still own uh, Lampton Castle, I'm not sure that they live there now, near Chesley Street and Washington. The estate is still a large one, and you might have seen bits of it in the Paradise series on TV. The first Earl of Durham from 1833 was Radical Jack, for whom Pensher Monument was constructed in 1848 by his allegedly grateful tenants. He'd been instrumental in drafting the Great Reform Bill of 1832. He was ambassador to Russia in 1835-7. to He'd gone on to serve the nation as Governor General and High Commissioner of North America, that's to say Canada really, and was involved in the settlement of the Canadian issue in the 1840s. He was married to Louisa, daughter of Earl Grey. These people are all connected with one another. Uh, he of the tea, the monument in Newcastle, and the Great Reform Bill of 1832. After his death in 1840, the first Earl's surviving son, George Frederick Darcy Lambton, became the second Earl of Durham. He married Beatrix Hamilton, one of 13 children herself, and she gave him 13 children, nine boys and four girls, and amazingly for the time, all survived. Perhaps not surprisingly, uh, Beatrix herself died shortly after the birth of Francis, the 13th child. And in 1871, George Frederick Darcy, the second Earl, died, leaving his 13 children. John George, the eldest of the boys, who was a twin, he'd been born shortly before his brother Frederick William, who was thereby frequently referred to as the man who wasn't the Earl of Durham by 15 minutes, he succeeded him. Of the nine boys, two of them became generals. One was an admiral of the fleet, one was a racehorse trainer, 
and of course uh, John George was the Lord Lieutenant of Durham. But the today's talk uh, I've concentrated on the girls or the ladies, Beatrix, Catherine, Eleanor, and Anne. So, what are your sources for your um, your information that you're going to give us today on them? Well. Um, Sad man that I am, I rise early and go through newspaper archives, so that's been a long trawl for the 13 of them, just checking on what it says about them. And also a book by Sir John Colville, who'd been given access both to the Lambton Archive, which is not easily accessible, and the Royal Archive at Windsor, and it was very well connected, John Colville. He'd been Assistant Private Secretary to Chamberlain, Churchill and Attlee at various times, was married to a daughter of the Earl of Ellesmere, who was herself a Lambton. So John Colville knew people with anecdotes and stories to tell about what he calls those Lamptons, with a, an exclamation mark. So wish lads and lasses, had ye gobs, I'll tell yous all an awful story, but not about the Lampton warm, more about the Lampton women. And in truth, their lives were not awful, they were privileged and gilded, and none of them was eaten by a worm. They did their bit during the Great War. So let's start with Beatrice. Yep. Um, Beatrice Louise was born in 1859. She married Sidney Herbert, who became the 14th Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery in 1895, and thus she became the Countess of Pembroke and Montgomery. They lived at Wilton, near Salisbury, and were fully engaged in what we might call the aristocratic social whirl of the time. The 14th Earl was a Privy Councillor, President of the MCC in 1896, and perhaps in passing, I should mention for cricket fans that Wilton was the setting for annual cricket weeks pre-war, and Lady Pembroke's brothers, especially Claude, often played there against famous travelling teams like the Free Foresters and Isingari and others for whom the likes of Frank Gillingham, Charlie Courtright and BJT Bosenkett played. Those names may not mean much to you, but uh, B.J.T. Bosenkett was the father of a newsreader and also invented the googly. Australians call the googly the bosey. The Earl, uh, that's Lady Pembroke's husband, died in Naples in 1913, suddenly, and so the Countess was a widow when the war began. So what is in a name? <laughs> What's in a name? That which we call a Lady Pembroke by any other name would easily confuse a researcher into aristocratic activities. Let me explain if I can. In using the newspaper archive to create a timeline for Beatrix Louisa Lampton, you type in a name, but bear in mind that name can change and in fact did. So when searching for Beatrix or Beatrice Lampton, uh, it's straightforward until she marries Sidney Herbert, the 14th Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery, and she becomes Lady Pembroke, stroke Countess of Pembroke. The issue being that there's already a Dowager Countess of Pembroke, but she's not always called the Dowager Countess of Pembroke, sometimes just the Countess of Pembroke. Helpfully, Sidney and Beatrix call their first daughter Beatrix, born in 1878, uh, and so... You know, there's a complication. To add to the fun, Reginald Herbert, the son of Sidney and Beatrix, married Beatrix Paget in 1904. Pleasingly, none of their children was named Beatrix. 
So we've got basically uh, three Beatrixes involved in the story. Sidney Herbert, the 14th Earl of Pembroke, died in Rome in 1913. And so Lady Beatrix Louisa Pembroke, near Lambton, becomes the Dowager Countess or Lady Pembroke. And Reginald's wife Beatrix, near Paget, becomes the current Countess stroke Lady Pembroke. The Dowager Countess stroke Lady Pembroke seems to largely retire from public life after husband's death and certainly moves out of Wilton House to a presumably smaller property in East Noyle nearby. There are therefore at any one time two Lady or stroke Countess Pembrokes and the information that I've included in the podcast may confuse the two, ah, for which I apologise. I think that the newspapers sometimes miss out the appellation dowager. So, for example, it seems quite likely that Lady Beatrix Neil Lampton maintained her interest in the Wiltshire Poultry Society and the Nursing Association and possibly the Women's Economy League, whereas it was probably Lady Beatrix Neil Paget married to an army officer that was present at the review of the British Army in Cologne in 1919, rather than the 60-year-old Dowager Beatrix. In short, uh, don't assume that the activities of Lady Pembroke of 1914 to 18 described in this podcast are those of Lady Beatrix Pembroke nay Lampton. They may be Lady Beatrix Pembroke nay Paget. Well, with that um, health warning uh, to, to for, for my mind, let's continue with the podcast. So the obvious area of, of many women's involvement in uh, the Great War, and we've obviously had a number of podcasts on this subject, was nursing. So can you tell us if this was the case for Beatrice? It was the case for Beatrix. So in January 1915, Salisbury Red Cross were thanking her for cakes, pastries, crackers and six pheasants. Christmas at the uh, Christmas 1914 of the Red Cross Hospital. Uh, the gentlewoman pointed out that the French Red Cross in London was to be headed by the Vicomtesse de la Panouse, and Lady Pembroke was one of the many English ladies on the honorary committee. She gave support to the Wiltshire branch of the French Wounded Emergency Fund, inspected Salisbury Infirmary and the Red Cross Hospital, attended public meetings to arrange a house-to-house collection for the Red Cross Penny Fund, and indeed herself promised 500 pennies, which sounds like a lot, but it's only a couple of quid. She lent her car to the Red Cross for two weeks. She gave a diamond tiara for sale at Christie's for the Red Cross, and that brought in £340, a bit more generous than the 500 pennies. In May 1916, she took a stall at the Wounded Allies Relief Committee at the War Fair at Caledonian Market, Islington, There were apparently five miles of stalls, and by August 1916, Wilton House, the family home, had been placed at the disposal of the War Office as a hospital. In August of 1917, at the bank holiday, there was a fate in aid of recuperative hostels for soldiers and sailors who have suffered shell shock. In March of 1918, she was on the committee for the Palace Theatre's matinee for the Tankerton Military Hospital. And still on nursing, in May 1918, Lady Pembroke opened the Salisbury Red Cross auction gift sale, and lot one, as the newspapers pointed out, would be the VC Cockerel. Sorry, did I mishear that? A VC called Cockerel? I didn't know about him. 
No, the VC cockerel of war boys in the Fens uh, was an actual cockerel. It was sold and resold between 1915 and 18, two and a half thousand times. It travelled 2,400 miles across the country, but, uh, taken by Mr. Frank Fison, and raised over a staggering £14,000 for good causes. Like Willie Appleby of Fatfield, the VC cockerel was abandoned. But unlike Willie Appleby of Fatfield, it had the VC. It raised £535 at Salisbury. And while on the subject of chickens, heroic chickens or not-so-heroic chickens, uh, she was indeed the president of the South Wiltshire Egg Collection Scheme and pointed out that the AGM that has had increased its production by 40,000 eggs. In June 1918, she got the OBE for her hospital work and in March of 1919, she was made CBE at Buckingham Palace. And was Lady Pembroke involved in the land army in any way? She was. I, I don't think there were many things that these women were not involved in. She was present at the War Agriculture Committee in Wiltshire. She reported that 8,000 plus women had registered to work on the land. In December 1917, she was presenting badges to women workers of the land army at Devizes. Uh, 250 women parading in smocks and khaki felt hats. Many had attended farm schools before going to work on the land. And uh, the paper pointed out 265,000 women had done agriculture work across the country. In September 1919, Lady Pembroke presented good service ribbons to members of the Women's Land Army in North Wiltshire and gave them a tea party. And in October 1919, the Landswoman magazine uh, was still printing photographs of Lady Pembroke with the Land Army at Swindon. So quite how long... Uh, this organisation continued, I don't really know. So having um, having been, as you point out, quite involved in war work, were there any, or was there any, post-war legacy uh, events for Beatrice? In August 1919, the Hampshire Telegraph, remember she lived in Salisbury, uh, reported Churchill's visit to the Army of the Rhine at Cologne. There was an immense grand parade, a review of the Sixth Corps, watched by Lady Pembroke and various others. Uh, lots of aristocrats there, American soldiers there, bands. It was the whole military parade thing. And in August 1918, uh, the Royal Horticultural Society set up the War Relief Fund to raise money to rebuild, get this, not a small task, the land of Belgium, France and Serbia. And Lady Pembroke was the Wiltshire County President. Beatrix died in 1944, and the Bishop of Salisbury spoke at her funeral <laughs> rather less fulsomely than you might have expected, basically saying she was kind and loved her garden. And I think, actually, she was rather more than those things. Whether they'd fallen out or not, I don't know. So, by my calculations, we've covered one Lambton Women, and there are three more to go. So can we start with number two, please? Right. Catherine, OK, married George Godolphin Osborne, Marquess of Carmarthen, in February 1884. Uh, later, he became the Duke of Leeds, and that's the Leeds in Kent, Leeds Castle, I think, rather than the city of Leeds in Yorkshire. She had five children, and in 1916, the gentlewoman found time to describe her. The Duchess of Leeds may be best described by the title of one of her own books, A Lover of the Beautiful. She reads a great deal, writes clever stories, and some graceful poetry. Also, she's musical, has artistic tastes, and knows much of Italy, its history, and its antiquities. 
That's no surprise. She spent six months of the year there. She has straight features and the pale, creamy skin of the lambton. How nice. But she was doing the same kind of thing as her sister, or her sisters, as we'll get on to. She was sending shirts for soldiers, raising money for the Navy League, donating items for Red Cross sale, involved in the war work of the church army. Her daughter, Monica, was a nurse. She was organizing concerts for women war workers and raising money for the East Surrey Regiment's Comfort Fund. She was involved in a matinee, uh, which was uh, for Lady Lytton's Hospital. It was Ariadne in Mantua, music by Eugene Gousson, songs by Ivor Novello, and play by J.M. Barry, so a distinguished uh, group. And it would feature music hall stars like George Roby, Leslie Henson, and Gladys Cooper. In March 1915, there were discussions led by the wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury about setting up clubs for the guidance of young women. Girls' patriotic clubs, they called them, where they'd get guidance to avoid the excitement of being with lots of soldiers and the pregnancies that sometimes came from that excitement. Palmar Gazette of March 1915 listed 26 ladies, all terrifically aristocratic, with Christian names beginning A to Z, so they could receive donations from those with the same initial as themselves. Thus, if your name began with K, you sent your donation for the girls' patriotic clubs to Catherine. Uh, in October 1914, the Duchess uh, was featured in an advert extolling the virtues of an invention of Sir Hiram Maxim, something that, like his gun, was a killer. But it was a killer of microbes. It was a nasal spray and had been used at Windsor Castle for Qatar, colds, etc. Interestingly, he first used it in 1910, did Sir Hiram, and offered to give away 100 as long as the applicant included a letter from his priest to say that it wouldn't be sold on. Uh, Times have changed. In similar vein, in December 1918, she gave her name to, along with Kipling, an advert that said England's best gift for wounded poilus was a series of cahiers with works by Kipling, Hardy, Leacock, George Bernard Shaw, Bret Hart, et al. It was eight shillings for eight volumes. The Queen of Belgium, the French president, the Portuguese president had already subscribed. How many of them were ever sold and given to French poilus? I have no idea. She did find time in December 1915 to attend the wedding of Mr. Asquith's daughter. Uh, that was Violet, marrying Morris Bonham Carter. Distinguished guests included the Randolph Churchills, Kitchener, the Aga Khan, Haldane, Lloyd George and Miss Lloyd George, the Earl of Curzon, the most superior person, Sir Edward Grey, the Balfours, you name it, they were all there, as you might expect, the Prime Minister's daughter. And if I can finish, uh, in August 1919, the Duchess gave a peace fate to all their tenants at Hornby Castle in Yorkshire, the family home, and all those from the estate who'd served. The Duke of Leeds had apparently done important and perilous work with regard to patrol boats and minesweepers because he was, the, he was a voluntary yachtsman and then he became in charge of patrol boats and minesweeping in both the North Sea and later the Mediterranean. He was vice commodore of the Squadron Yacht Club. The Duke, who Catherine thought was a dreadful bore, died in 1927, at which point, I think she got her own back a bit, she sold his golf clubs knocked down Hornby Castle and went off to live on the Riviera where she could avoid the northern cold weather which affected her asthma. Now, 
As ever, having done my research for this podcast, I know that Eleanor, or Nelly, as the third of the Lampton daughters was known. Was there anything uh, that marked her out uh, from her sisters? Yeah, Catherine spent six months of the year in Italy, generally speaking. Eleanor, you get the sense, was much more involved in things, uh, issues of the time. She was devoutly religious, according to Sir John Colville, had a pre-war history of involvement in the non-militant side of the struggle for women's rights. Her marriage to Lord Edgar Algernon Robert Gascoigne Cecil, I just love these names sometimes, the third son of the Marquis of Salisbury, who was Prime Minister three times, he later became Viscount Cecil of Chelwood, and the marriage brought him £60,000. <laughs> Woo! Multiply by 90, if you want a, mo- a modern-day figure, and gave her an even wider range of contacts and interests. During the war, he was, for a time, Minister of the Blockade and later helped the Covenant of the League of Nations. He helped draft the Covenant of the League of Nations and he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1937. So, again, high-flying circles, but slightly different. Uh, In in terms of pre-war suffrage, uh, the struggle, in a sense, ended when the war began, but Lady Cecil was chair of the Kensington branch of the Conservative and Unionist Women's Franchise Review. She was a suffragist rather than a suffragette. Uh, She would be involved in those things that they called a café chantant, so a meeting with a few songs uh, as part of the Unionist Women's Franchise Association. They would have speakers, music, drama, clairvoyance, smoking was allowed in the evening, tea and coffee, nightmares, tickets for Bob, so it was obviously for an exclusive group of people. The Aberdeen Evening Express quoted her, Lady Cecil, on the discussion of honours for women, saying, as long as honours are distributed not for merit alone, but to satisfy the electoral and financial needs of political parties, oh, where have we heard that before? Uh, Women, in my judgment, are better left outside. The exclusion of women, she said, seems to argue stupidity or ingratitude on the part of the state. Women's suffragists society, local uh, meetings, she would chair them, she was involved in suffrage garden parties, suffragists at homes. Uh, In July 1914, in Common Cause, there were details of the International Week and pen pictures of the overseas guests and the meetings and seminars they were going to be holding and attending. In Common Cause in July 1914, there was a uh, a letter from Lady Cecil and other aristocratic women involved in the suffragist movement, describing the government's handling of the militants as inept. While they disapproved of militants, the suffragettes, they thought the initial sentences on them were far too severe for what often minor crimes or offences. Harsh sentences led to hunger strikes and forcible feeding, which were both humiliating and offensive to all involved, which led to the Cat and Mouse Act, where women accused of serious offences like arson, were freed after a few days and then sometimes repeated their offences. The letter said that Mr. McKenna's administration, he was the Home Secretary, uh, combines the maximum of harshness with a minimum of efficiency. And the best solution would be to allow people to put their case, not just women, of course, because there were um, plenty of male supporters, but the government had engaged in sharp practice and shabby tricks. She was involved with militant Fawcett, uh, who would be speaking about uh, the right of women to have a say and the vote. And Mrs. Fawcett also raised the issues of insurance, the age of consent, the right to be recognized as a parent. 
but emphasised that she detested the militancy uh, of the likes of the Pankhursts. Can you say a bit more about how the struggle for women's rights manifested itself during the war? Right, so as we said, the war kind of ended the, the suffragist and suffragette movement because it became the right to serve rather than the right to vote that was uh, at the forefront of their minds. So I'm going to give one example, but it's about the breadth of the changes that the war had brought or was bringing. So this in the Pall Mall Gazette of February 1917, and I'll need two or three deep breaths for this. The great warm meeting for women at the Royal Albert Hall with the Queen, the Commissioners of the Dominions, Lady Hague, a platform of wives of Mrs. Asquith, Mrs. Churchill, Miss Balfour, the two Mrs. Chamberlains, several cabinet ministers, including Mr. Neville Chamberlain. He thanked them on behalf of the Queen and delivered a message from a sister French organisation, uh, the Association for Voluntary Enrolment of French Women. The Royal Choral Society performed for them a very distinguished meeting, but it included representatives of women clerks and secretaries, GPO sorting assistants, Actresses Franchise League, Bedford College of London University, for which Millicent Fawcett had established scholarships for women, the British Red Cross, the Catholic Women's League, the Civil Service Typist Association, the Working Girls Clubs, Girl Guides, Joint Women's VADs, London School of Medicine, the Mothers' Union, Munition Workers' Committee, National Union of Women Workers, National Federation of Women Workers, National Union of Railway Women Guilds, uh, National Union of Teachers, the Primrose League, Queen Mary's Needlework Guild, St John's Ambulance, Social Welfare Association for London, SAFA, Sunday School Union, the Union of Jewish Women, the Victorian League, Women's Patrol Committee, the Women's Volunteer Reserve, the Women's Cooperative Guild, and the Women's Farm and Garden Union. <laughs> Mr. Chamberlain, in his remarks, uh, said men were less adaptable than women. And though women had learned how to make shells, keep accounts, drive vehicles, all with an efficiency that had surprised and delighted patronizing men, men hadn't learned how to be district nurses or how to give women the vote, came a voice. Um, the Manchester Evening News quoted a letter from Lady Cecil in which she says that women who now waste money on fashion are shirkers, even more than the man who fails to lend his last sovereign that can be spared. Extravagance or ostentatious display of any kind is nauseous to all right-thinking people. Stern economy is the only course, the more so perhaps since her husband was Minister for Blockade, 1916-18. Uh, she was involved with the Land Army, various hospitals, the Blue Triangle days for the YWCA. She attended recruiting meetings. She had memorial services to attend. Her own brother Francis, nicknamed Pickles, uh, in the Blues and Rock. Blues and Royals was killed in October 1914. Her cousin Geoffrey was also killed in 1914, the son of Lord Lansdowne. So there was personal pain for, for these aristocratic ladies. Despite the losses of friends and relations, she was quoted in 1915 in the Sheffield Independent in a manly letter, they called it manly, uh, in reply to suggestions of an anti-German league. She thought there was something un-English in the idea and said, let us be like British bulldogs and not German Schweinhund. There was even the occasional wedding. Her sister-in-law married the Marquis of Hartington. She attended her cousin Claude's marriage. He was the son of uh, Frederick William, the 
the man who was not the Earl of Durham by 15 minutes. Uh, he served in the Lanarkshire Yeomanry, spent some time in Gallipoli, and his diary in the London Archive makes very interesting reading. He had champagne in his bunk on the way to Italy. Uh, would he be able to make it for dinner? Well, he wasn't quite sure, but some more champagne would help. Um, I'm not sure if the troops were similarly treated. But Claude, uh, his diary is very interesting reading. And was there any post-war follow-up uh, in her work and interests? Well, Lady Cecil, who became Viscountess Chelwood, was featured in the papers during the 20s and 30s at various League of Nations Union events, commemorations, dinners and the like. And she and her husband went on a five-week tour of the United States trying to persuade Americans of the value of the League of Nations. Obviously, uh, they weren't entirely successful in that. Viscount Chelwood uh, was appointed British delegate to the League of Nations in 1935. So she was involved in that side of uh, the Peace Pledge Union and the, the League and so on. She was also quoted, obviously, delighted in 1928 when all women were given the vote. Which brings us to Anne, the youngest of the sisters. Tell us about her. So Anne was the 12th of the 13. She devoted her life to Lord Durham to the point where, reading about him in researches uh, some years ago for the men of Washington, I had assumed that she was in fact his wife, because it always said Lord Durham, accompanied by Lady Anne Lampton, Lord Durham, Lady Anne Lampton, I just assumed she was a Lady Anne who he'd married. In fact, the marriage and divorce was a major story in the 1880s and makes fascinating reading. Uh, Anne had a steamer named after her, um, one of the, uh, the, coal, uh, the coal ships, and a pit at fence houses. She went fishing and shooting in Scotland. She was a regular at Ascot, Goodwood, Doncaster, Newmarket. You name a race course, she'd have been there. She went on trips to Germany and France, Spain, Switzerland, Monte Carlo, Egypt. In London, it was dinners and balls, house parties that often included royalty and a privileged social round. In 1907, she got the job of launching the Superb, a ship even bigger than the Dreadnought. She did come into her own during the Great War and was involved, though hardly if ever spoke, at recruiting meetings, the War Agriculture Board, the Work Depot, uh, which took in donations from all sorts of local groups in County Durham, the War Pensions Committee, the Nursing Association, the kind of things that have been talked about with her sister. Now, one thing I've got in my notes is the Lady Anne Work Depot. Tell us about that. Well, in 1919, um, they produced a report on the Durham County Work Depot, and it's uh, basically a list of the things that they produced and sent off to members of the DLI and other soldiers. 14,000 bandages, 18,000 mittens and fingerless gloves, 22,000 mufflers, 394 tins of OXO cubes, 16,000 day shirts, 1,400 night shirts, vests, 83,000 tabs, uh, 134 pounds of tobacco, and in addition to the above, you got aprons, armlets, badges, bed rests, boots, boot polish, borosic powder, biscuits, etc. You can see where I'm going with this. There's an alphabetical list of the stuff that they produced, and it obviously made a significant difference to the support of uh, DLI men and, and often DLI prisoners who were being looked after from the county. Lady Anne passed away at her brother's townhouse at 39 Grosvenor Square in March 1922. 
She was 53 years old and had done her bit. So when we talk about them all doing their bit, what was the, I suppose, the broad impact of the the, the Lampton women's uh, war work during the conflict? It's a great question, but I, I don't know that I have a great answer to it. These women were able, as a result of their positions and perhaps inevitably the positions and reputations of their husbands, or in Anne's case, her brother as Lord Lieutenant of the county, uh, they were well-known aristocrats. They were able to pull strings. They were able to bring influence to bear. They were able to be listened to and to be reported in the newspapers. The newspapers were besotted, besotted with aristocrats. Every time they had a birthday, you'd get 20 newspapers across the country saying it was Lady Catherine's birthday. Um, so perhaps they inspired, they were able to motivate others. How you quantify that contribution, I don't really know. Other than that, the list of events, some of which I've given today, but there are many, many more, confirms that they did play a, a more or less significant part in the war effort. And finally, where can people read more about your work and the work of the Lampton women during the Great War? Well, <clears throat> we were uh, a project called Washington the Great War, and we do have a website uh, at www.mp.weebly.com. But this material doesn't naturally fit onto it because it's mostly about the soldiers during the course of the war. I do have chrono chronological lists of newspaper entries for the four Lampton women and the nine Lampton men. And indeed, uh, I'm happy to let anybody have it. They can contact me through Washington Great War at Twitter, or they can email me at Pete Welsh Gettysburg at btinternet.com, my Gettysburg address. Not quite as significant as a different Gettysburg address, but we do our best. And at some stage, after a bit of proofreading of all of this stuff, I'll be sending it off to Durham Archive, who are currently in a state of flux because they're moving from County Hall to a new uh, properly organised site. So it's there. I'm happy to let anyone have it. I've never been a believer in find this stuff out and then hold it to yourself. Peter, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>